You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special CyberWire extended interview. I'm Dave Bittner. My guest today is Richard A. Clark, former National Coordinator for Security, Infrastructure Protection, and Counterterrorism for the United States. Under President George W. Bush, he was appointed Special Advisor to the President on Cybersecurity. He's currently Chairman of Good Harbor Consulting. He's the author or co-author of several books, the latest of which is titled The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. The book is co-authored with Robert Kanacki. So the military talks about things as domains, land, sea, air, and over the years they added space as the, the fourth domain. Now, in the last few years, the military have talked about a fifth domain, cyberspace, uh, where they expect cyber war to take place. So we're calling this the fifth domain because not just because the book is about cyber war, because it's also about other things that take place every day in cyberspace, uh, including what happens to you as an individual, what happens to corporations. Uh, it's not just about cyber war. Yeah, one of the, the points you make in the book, you say that the next major war will be provoked by a cyber attack. What leads you to that conclusion? Well, the director of national intelligence this year publicly testified uh, that the Russian government has hacked into the controls of our power grid, uh, and that the Chinese government, the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army, uh, is capable of controlling uh, or affecting our controls for our natural gas pipelines. Uh, that, we suggest in the book, that creates a, a situation of crisis instability, where uh, if there is tension uh, among nations, uh, people are going to look around for, well, what, how can we do signaling uh, or how can we do an initial attack uh, that's not going to end up in killing people? And the answer is going to be cyber. Uh, we actually had proof of that uh, a few weeks ago uh, when the Iranians shot down a drone uh, and the United States wanted to retaliate. Uh, the normal retaliation package was given to the president, and he initially approved it. And it was the traditional way of retaliating with cruise missiles and bombers. Um, but after a while, when they thought about it in the White House, they said, no, we don't want to go that far. Let's just start with a cyber attack, because it seems easier, less bloody, less lethal. But the problem with cyber attacks is they do destroy things, uh, and they provoke retaliation. Uh, and when you get into a cycle of tit-for-tat retaliation, ultimately that ends up in a kinetic or conventional war. The Pentagon's policy, publicly articulated policy, uh, is that if the United States gets hit by a cyber attack from another nation state, and if that attack is sufficiently 
uh, destructive, that we reserve the right to respond with a kinetic attack. Uh, so we've said publicly, cyber attacks on us will not just be responded to with cyber attacks on you. When the Russians shut down Ukraine's power grid, do you suspect that was a demonstration of capabilities? Was that a shot across our bow? I think it was a, a, a demonstration of capabilities that um, the Russians have used Ukraine a lot uh, as a test bed. Uh, they used it as a test bed for their uh, media manipulation, their social engineering uh, through the use of uh, Facebook and, and, uh, and, and media placements uh, prior to doing that to us in 2016. Uh, and I think their attack on the power grid there uh, was an experiment. What's interesting about that um, attack on the power grid was that experts I've talked to in electric power systems say that given the controls that the Russians were able to establish uh, on that grid, they could have physically destroyed transformers uh, and switches and generators that would have taken months to replace. They had that capability, but they didn't do it. Uh, So when we think about Russian attacks on power grids, or anybody attacking a power grid, we tend to think of it, oh, well, there's a blackout, and like other blackouts we've all experienced, you get electricity back in a few hours or maybe a few days. No, a cyber attack could actually physically destroy generators and transformers that we do not have laying around in the warehouse. Uh, They have to be built on just-in-time orders, just-in-time delivery, uh, and it would take months. And try to imagine what a society would be like uh, without electric power for months. Uh, ATMs don't work, uh, therefore there's no currency available. Uh, credit card systems don't work. Uh, food doesn't get delivered. Uh, there's a very thin veneer in our civilization uh, that falls apart pretty quickly when a big city doesn't have power. You know, back in 2013, um, you and, and your team at Good Harbor published a paper that was called Securing Cyberspace Through International Norms. And I wonder, should critical infrastructure be considered off-limits? Should that be a norm that's established? I would say yes. I would say that um, power grids, natural gas pipelines, public communication systems should be off-limits, just as hospitals are. Uh, In the existing laws of war, you're not supposed to attack a hospital. Of course, Russia uh, has been teaming up with Syria to do exactly that, to target hospitals um, in Syria in the civil war. But I think international norms do have some value, and I would definitely say uh, get out of the power grids, get out of the natural gas pipelines. When it comes to testing traditional kinetic weapons, you know, there's, there's, they're unambiguous. If I do a, a test of a nuclear weapon, th- that capability is clear for everyone to see. Um, but it's different in cyber. And uh, we hear that um, nation states are, are hesitant to, to demonstrate these resources for fear of, of burning those resources, that revealing them will make them less effective. And that's why deterrence doctrine from the nuclear era doesn't port uh, well over to the cyber era. Hmm. Uh, Deterrence doctrine, um, MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, depended upon people knowing uh, that both sides had weapons that would work, uh, knowing that those weapons could definitely get through, uh, knowing that those weapons could do a specific amount of damage. Uh, And that's not the case in cyber. Also in, in deterrence doctrine, 
from the nuclear era, attribution was not an issue. Um, attribution mm-hmm. can be an issue with cyber attacks because we now know that the Russians and the Chinese and apparently the Americans uh, use each other's cyber weapons uh, to obscure who's doing the attacks. Uh, and apparently we've all stolen each other's weapons. But certainly nothing like that ever happened in the, in the nuclear era. We never had the Russians running around with a U.S. missile submarine or mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, so you're right. We're reluctant to use a cyber weapon because once you've used it, other people can figure out how it works uh, and can build defenses against it. Uh, and therefore, we don't want to use a weapon uh, unless we absolutely have to. We can't demonstrate it. Uh, and frankly, when we pull the trigger, we can't really be confident we know how well it will work or what the defenses are uh, that it'll have to overcome. So cyber is a different kettle of fish than uh, every other kind of combat, every other kind of war. Yeah, there's an interesting point you make in the book. And uh, you say that traditionally military strategists uh, were looking for certainty um, and that certainty was aligned with security. But on the, in the cyber domain, uncertainty may be something that deters military action. Can you explain that difference to us? Well, no military commander wants to attack unless he knows that there's a pretty good chance he's going to win. Uh, and in the case of cyber, uh, you really don't know when you launch an attack what defenses you're going to come up against. Uh, do they already know this attack technique? Will they uh, allow you in and then uh, shut you down? And the fact that we cannot be sure how effective our offensive weapons will be at any given time uh, means that uh, anybody advising a president or a commander uh, should tell them, uh, hey, boss, we don't know uh, that this is going to do the job. Uh, that changes things. And does that run counter to how military leaders are accustomed to thinking? Uh, it's entirely counter to what they're used to thinking. Um, they have, in the past, always been able to exercise, uh, simulate, Uh, have high probabilities of success, uh, know what the outcome will be. With cyber war, they're not that sure. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. I want to dig into some of the activities around the 2016 elections and then where we're headed when it comes to Russia and the 2020 elections. Um, But first, I think 
when President Trump took office, there was some optimism that cybersecurity was going to be a focus. You know, one of his first executive orders was centered on cybersecurity. Um, how has that played out? Not well. Um, he initially had a, a very good guy uh, running cybersecurity policy from the White House, uh, the old job I had. Uh, and that was Rob Joyce from NSA, a very respected nonpartisan guy, uh, expert. Um, and John Bolton, when he came in uh, as National Security Advisor, got rid of him uh, and didn't replace him with anybody. Uh, so the old sort of cyber czar job doesn't exist. There's no one really making policy or implementing policy uh, across the board out of the White House. The same thing happened in the State Department where Rex Tillerson came in and uh, wondered why there were people working on international cyber norms uh, and got rid of that office. Uh, they did, I will admit, uh, the Trump administration uh, did write a really good um, national security policy, national security strategy for cyber. Uh, I say it's really good because it looks a lot like the one I wrote for Bush. Um, <laughs> but they, uh, they haven't implemented it. An, an interesting point you make in the book is how uh, heading into the 2020 elections, the playbook that the Russians used, this was not new for them, that they have a history of, of this sort of propaganda and this these new cyber capabilities really played right into their hands. Well, the Russians have a history going back even before the communist revolution. Uh, Russian governments have been doing things with uh, information manipulation. Uh, and they have words for it, um, maskarovka, kompromat, disinformatia. For example, they spread the rumor in the 1980s uh, throughout Africa uh, that the HIV-AIDS virus was created on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania by a CIA-funded program. Absolutely not a shred of truth to that. Uh, but everybody in Africa ended up believing it because they would, they would bribe reporters uh, and editors to put it in newspapers and to put it on radio and TV uh, all over Africa. And the U.S. never was able to catch up uh, and convince people that it wasn't true. So the, when the Internet comes along uh, and social media comes along, they are empowered uh, by the Internet uh, to do this on steroids. It seems to me like there's a disproportionality there as well in terms of the investment it takes in these weapons, even if you want to say disinformation is a weapon, is very low compared to investing in military tools and, and techniques. Oh, absolutely. There's a great asymmetry here uh, that allows them to have an enormous uh, impact with very little cost. I must admit I'm puzzled that given what we saw in the 2016 election, what I would have thought would have been a um, non-controversial notion that uh, defending our electoral system would have bipartisan support. That's not what we're seeing. We're seeing um, you know, Mitch McConnell blocking efforts to strengthen our security when it comes to elections. Well, Mitch McConnell is. Uh, there are Republican senators on, that are interested in making progress on election security, uh, Senator Langford, Senator Rubio, uh, but Mitch McConnell is blocking it. And uh, his argument is pretty transparently uh, false. His, his argument is, well, we don't want to federalize the federal elections. Um, that's nonsense. Uh, I think Mitch McConnell is once again uh, pimping for Donald Trump and the White House. Uh, 
they don't want to improve our election security because they want the Russians to interfere again in the next presidential election. You saw Trump uh, joking about it uh, with Putin, the two of them sitting next to each other laughing, and Trump wagging his finger at him and saying, oh, you don't, don't interfere in our election, and then laugh. You know, that, that, that's almost a treasonous act, I think. They want the same outcome uh, as they had in 2016, which is the Russians being able to manipulate social media and perhaps even election machinery uh, to get this guy reelected. They got him elected the last time. They want to get him elected the next time. Uh, McConnell knows that, and McConnell wants that outcome. Is there a case for optimism then? I, I think it's easy to be cynical with this, particularly given the the, the, the conditions we find ourselves in, the, the news we, we hear every day. Um, but the book is not just one of doom and gloom. There There is optimism throughout. There is, uh, in two respects. First of all, we say... Uh, Something's happened since we wrote Cyber War 10 years ago. Uh, uh, 10 years ago, we said no corporation could defend itself. Uh, This book says, no, wait a minute. Uh, There are a lot of corporations that are getting it right, a lot of corporations that are successful. They are the dog that does not bark. Uh, You don't get news stories about, oh, XYZ Corporation hasn't been hacked. (laughs) That's not a news story. Mm. Uh, But there are corporations like that, and we go in some detail in the book about how they're different and how they achieve this level of security. That is a source for optimism. The second source for optimism is that we have throughout the book, I don't know, 80, I think, specific proposals uh, for uh, addressing cybersecurity, improving it, uh, both at home and internationally, in government and in the private sector. Uh, and so we, we end up the book with the, uh, a chapter entitled, It's All Done But the Coding. Uh, which is, as you know, something that's said frequently in the IT business. Uh, <laughs> we, we, you know, we've architected, we know what we want to do, we know it can be done, uh, now just give it to the guys to do the coding. We think that if you had um, a president in the Congress uh, and uh, other uh, players who really wanted to solve this problem, it can be solved. Uh, we've had lots of studies, task forces, blue ribbon committees, industry uh, consortium, we know what to do. This is no longer the problem from hell. It just takes people of goodwill uh, acting on a bipartisan basis. That uh, is really hard to achieve in Washington. You know, a, a point you make in the book is uh, sort of pushing back against this notion that we may find ourselves uh, up against a, a cyber Pearl Harbor or a cyber 9-11 um, you know, one of my colleagues here at uh, the CyberWire makes the point that we could just as likely find ourselves uh, in a sort of a cyber cyber Tonkin Gulf. Um, I'm wondering what your take is on that. Well, uh, I assume what he's talking about is the attribution problem. Right. Uh, well, the attribution problem, uh, What again, what we said 10 years ago was the attribution problem wasn't bad because 10 years ago, uh, NSA was pretty damn good at figuring out who was doing the attacks. Hmm. And they still are. Um, you know, this, uh, we talk about in the book the, the specific names of Russians, North Koreans, Iranians, and Chinese, the spe- specific names of hackers. Uh, and if you go to the DOJ, the Justice Department website, you can see their pictures. Uh, these are individuals who have been indicted in the U.S. for hacking. Uh, ask yourself, how do we know? that it was them, uh, those individuals. And how do we get their pictures? 
I'm not going to answer that question, but you can you can <laughs> guess. So attribution is not impossible, but when other nations are stealing each other's weapons, then attribution gets a little bit more difficult. Uh, and we know that our tools, um, NSA tools, CIA tools, have appeared on the dark web. Uh, we can argue about how they got out, but they did. I've also noticed that there are some Chinese tools uh, available uh, on the dark web. Uh, and I suspect nation states are using uh, each other's weapons to confuse forensics. You know, personally, I find it helpful in my own mind to use uh, public health as a metaphor for cybersecurity. And if you look at the past hundred years of the progress we've made, where uh, we made tremendous strides in public health, and it's not perfect. You can you can wash your hands and and uh, you know t- do the basics, and still every night, every now and then you're going to get a cold. Um, do you find that, that that's a useful comparison? No. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <Fair> enough. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, Go on. Um, well, you know, I, I know people are always struggling to explain cybersecurity in terms of something else that people already understand. Right. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that you hear a lot from people is, well, if you just have good cyber hygiene, then you wouldn't get hacked. And I don't know what the hell that means. Hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody really knows what that means. Uh, it's not a matter of uh, good cyber hygiene. It's a matter of spending money. Uh, the companies that are spending 3 and 4% of their IT budget get hacked. The companies that are spending 8 to 10% of their IT budget on cybersecurity do not get hacked. Uh, that's nothing about hygiene. It's about money. So what, what's the take-home for the reader, the, the average person who's uh, going about their, their life, their day-to-day here in the U.S. and elsewhere? What's the message you want to send home with them? Well, cybersecurity affects everybody uh, and everything we do. Uh, from uh, whether or not it's safe to go to a hospital uh, and being strapped up to a, a, an IV drip machine or a heart-lung machine. Uh, it affects who, who gets elected, how the election processes work. It could, if it, uh, we had a bad day, uh, bring down an airline uh, or bring down a power grid. And it can certainly mess your own personal life up uh, in terms of uh, credit card theft and other uh, records uh, theft. Uh, So we have a chapter in the book about uh, what this means to the individual uh, and how, what are the things an individual can do uh, to increase their own cybersecurity. So individuals should do those many things that can improve their own security, but then they should be involved in the public debate to urge corporations they deal with and governments they deal with uh, to remove the threats uh, because we know how to do it. Well, the book is The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. Richard Clark, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. 
all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 